Several listeners have requested we try to explain, as objectively as possible, the establishment of Israel in 1948. This followed a United Nations vote in 1947. Now, that vote emerged from a backdrop of almost constant turbulence around borders in this part of the world ever since World War I. That war saw the end of the Ottoman Empire and it prompted the famous Balfour Declaration. This meant one of the war's victors, Great Britain, took over control of Palestine in the 1920s. It had been an Ottoman province. Well, the 30s were anything but tranquil. Who should have rights and why was constantly debated. This all accelerated with the end of World War II, where Europe's traumas were on full display amidst intense lobbying for a Jewish homeland and pleas for European Jews to immigrate. It all seemed intractable. Political solutions were needed, which is where the United Nations phase begins, and that'll be our focus now, with quite significant Australian involvement, as you'll hear. Let me welcome Bob Bowker. He's been an Australian ambassador in different parts of the region and knows it intimately. Thank you for helping us navigate this, Bob. Thanks, Geraldine. Nice to be here. Now, this post-war backdrop where the British decided under their very active Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, that it would relinquish its mandate, its governing principle. Why was this so? Because am I right? This is what really changed things? Well, the British were facing exhaustion after the the Second World War, uh, and they could see themselves having to return to uh, the circumstances they faced in the 1930s, the Arab uprising against their rule from 1936 to 39, which was a very bloody conflict, really. And they uh, also now faced a very determined Jewish force, which was absolutely committed to gaining sovereignty in order to secure a future. Uh, for the Jewish people after the Holocaust and and so on. And uh, when you put that exhaustion together uh, with the likelihood that a very determined force was going to prevail militarily over the British, um, I think Bevan decided that they were going to cut their losses and and give it away. Uh, it probably didn't help that in April 1946, uh, the King David Hotel was bombed uh, with considerable loss of of British life. And then uh, President Truman in the United States uh, took it upon himself to call for 100,000 Jewish Holocaust survivors to enter Palestine in May uh, 1946, uh, despite known British objections uh, to uh, the resumption of uh, Jewish migration. So basically, I think the Brits decided it was time to toss it in. Then how did it move to the UN, to the United Nations realm? Well, an interesting uh, piece of of uh, stiletto work on the part of those who were supporting the uh, the Jewish case. It was decided to send a, a special committee uh, to Palestine to uh, come up with recommendations to the General Assembly on uh, what should be the future of uh, Palestine. Uh, we should, and we should have, Palestine, of course, had been a province, really, of the Ottoman Empire, which had failed. Sure. So this is all an outgrowth of that, isn't it? This was all a question of what you do to unstitch uh, the consequences of the Balfour Declaration and the granting of a mandate to the British after the First World War to administer Palestine and uh, at the same time to reconcile the 
commitment that it had given to the Jewish uh, side uh, that there would be a national homeland in Palestine. The upshot was that a committee was sent to Palestine to come up with recommendations, and they produced two uh, sets of proposals. Uh, The majority favoured partition uh, and Jerusalem as a corpus separatum uh, and an economic union uh, between the Arab and the Jewish states. A minority, uh, only three countries in fact, proposed that there should be a single federated state with Jerusalem as a capital. And the these two uh, recommendations uh, went forward to uh, the General Assembly. Now, in that particular context, uh, the Arab side uh, wanted the minority report, uh, obviously, to, to prevail over the majority report. But to prevent that happening, uh, Doc Evatt, the Australian uh, Foreign Minister at the time, uh, ensured that uh, instead of the recommendations going to uh, the normal process of going to this uh, political committee of the General Assembly, they formed a special ad hoc uh, committee to consider the recommendations. And in practice, the majority report proposing uh, the partition and the corpus separatum, uh, that got the air time. That, that's the one that absorbed the oxygen of the discussion. And the, the minority report was marginalised. It never really got anything like the same level of attention. Right. And this led to the momentous vote, really, on November the 29th. We're coming up to the anniversary now, adopting this Resolution 181. Now, can you explain the significance of that, please? Well, this was, as you say, a a momentous uh, occasion because there was an enormous amount of effort required uh, to secure the final outcome of 33 votes in favour and 13 against uh, with 10 abstentions. Uh, There was uh, a huge political controversy in the United States uh, and a lobbying effort in the US to sustain support from the Truman administration uh, for the partition vote. Uh, The the reactions uh, from the developing world uh, were highly negative. Uh, the developing countries and the Arabs, of course, bitterly rejected the notion of, uh, of partition. They said it was against notions of uh, self-determination, uh, that it was uh, infringed on their sovereignty. They feared displacement by incoming uh, Jewish migrants. And there was also a high level of suspicion that uh, the Emir Abdullah of Transjordan may have secretly done a deal uh, with the Zionist body uh, to divide uh, partitioned Palestine between them. So all of those factors uh, played into the way in which this eventually spun out. And then it went to a General Assembly vote then, did did it not, uh, Bob? Yeah, the General Assembly vote uh, wound up as 33 in favour, 13 against, uh, which technically was one short of the two-thirds majority that was required to uh, secure passage. But they fudged that. They, they got it through, which became the basis of the partition. So that was always the plan for partition. Now, who voted for it? Who voted against it? Who abstained? Well, it's easiest to uh, work backwards. The abstentions were mostly the Latin Americans 
and interestingly, the United Kingdom, because the British basically had w wanted to wash their hands of, of all this. Uh, the negatives were the developing countries uh, and the Arab members of uh, the General Assembly, the Saudis, the Syrians and, and, and others. And uh, the remainder were those who were corralled, basically, uh, by the United States and by countries such as Australia into supporting the partition resolution. Now, the interesting thing is the Soviet Union voted in favour of it, even though Cold War concerns had started to play a role, as I understand it, in, say, President Truman's thinking. Uh, and they were, they were a little bit concerned about possible oil blockages, which, of course, came true later in the, in the 1970s. So, and, and then the Soviets changed their mind later, didn't they? That's right. The Soviet Union was actually one of the very first uh, countries to recognise Israel after the partition. And uh, that was essentially to poke a finger in the eye of the British. Uh, they, re they initially regarded uh, the Jewish agency and Israel uh, as a expression of self-determination, if you like, against the imperial powers. That approach, uh, as you say, shifted over time. But really, in the late 1940s, there was a inclination on the part of the Soviets to be positive uh, toward the creation of the new Jewish state. Mm. And there wasn't the level of connection uh, to the Arab world uh, that we saw uh, develop uh, during the 1950s in the context of the Cold War mm. and the frustrations of the Arab world uh, with Israel and the part played by the British and the United States. Now, as you say, the Arab countries and entities were always fiercely opposed to all of these developments, and they threatened that war would erupt as soon as any Israeli state was declared. They said they owned a majority of the land and the people, and I must say, even if you look at the census that the British conducted in 1918, that's true. They said there were 700,000 Arabs, and I think there were 58,000 Jewish people. So that's a pretty big distinction. Um, the British then withdrew unilaterally on May the 14th, 1948, suddenly, no effort to establish the proposed international regime in Jerusalem. And accordingly, the first Arab-Israeli war began on May the 15th. That's right. The consequences of that withdrawal uh, had been foreseen uh, by uh, the Arab side for some time. There was an enormous amount of popular agitation about what was going to emerge. But curiously, at the political leadership level, there was not much uh, pre-planning or organisation uh, involved. In the case of Jordan, for example, if one is to believe the memoirs of Glub Pasha, the head of the Arab Legion, the decision on the part of the Emir Abdullah to go to war uh, was taken quite suddenly uh, on the basis of a failure to uh, finally strike a deal with the Zionist lobby or Zionist side in regard to the division of, of Jerusalem. And uh, Glub claims that when told by Abdullah that he had to uh, go to war, he saluted smartly and uh, headed off to see the Minister of Finance, who looked up at him and said, there's no war in my budget, uh, sort it out yourself. And Glubb says that he his cash reserve when he went to war uh, was actually the British Army officers' Christmas party fund. Uh, th there was simply no serious preparation on the Arab side uh, for 
that conflict. On the Egyptian side, the advice uh, to the Egyptian monarch of the time was from his military was don't do it. Uh, we are not going to prevail against uh, the Jewish uh, forces who are battle-hardened from the Second World War. They have short lines of communication. And above all else, they have their backs to the wall and they are committed to what they uh, want to achieve. Uh, without necessarily saying it in quite such blunt terms, the Arabs did not know what they wanted uh, from this conflict. Were they trying to protect uh, Palestine for an Arab heritage or were they trying to prevent Abdullah having it uh, or were they simply uh, trying to respond to popular agitation and fury at the rising levels of Jewish migration uh, into Palestine? Yes, I must say, the British do bear some responsibility. I mean, just their sudden pullout, I hadn't quite realised. They, they suddenly pulled out. You've set the scene for it, but vacuums are very never very good things. Never. And what would you say post-war, what, what was the role of the Holocaust? How did it play a role in the, the various negotiations and diplomacy that you've set out? And the Arabs, I think, were trying very much to uh, keep the issue separate from the question of Jewish refugee, refugees from Europe. But what would be your judgment of, of the history of that time from, say, 46 to 52? Well, actually, if we start at uh, about 45, uh, you had the, the first serious discussion uh, between the United States and the Saudis. Uh, Roosevelt, uh, together with Ibn Saud, the uh, leader of, of Saudi Arabia. And in that conversation, uh, Roosevelt sought to uh, lay down a basic principle that in return for um, guaranteed American access uh, to Saudi oil, uh, the Americans would uh, provide a, a relationship with Saudi Arabia, which the Saudis uh, would enjoy. Ibn Saud's response to that was essentially to say, look, that's all as it may be, but I don't like this prospect of Holocaust survivors uh, being transplanted into uh, the Arab world. And uh, if you have Holocaust survivors, then that ought to be a problem which the Europeans who caused uh, that, that awful event um, uh, to deal with. It should not be resolved at the expense of the Arab world. So you had this this basic contradiction going on from the outset uh, on on uh, that relationship uh, of where Palestine and the Holocaust fitted uh, in the wider relationship between the Arab world and the West. Mm. In addition to that, you had the issues that were generated by the conflict itself. Yes, uh, something had to be done about Holocaust survivors. Uh, no, no question about that. But on the Arab side, from 1947 onwards, uh, you had an enormous outflow of refugees. We wound up with perhaps 725,000 people being, being displaced uh, from their homes. And the United Nations did its best uh, to secure acknowledgement that those refugees would have a right of return. Uh, Count Falk Bernadotte uh, tried very hard to secure acknowledgement of, of that right, uh, but he was assassinated uh, by the Jewish side on the 7th of September in 48. And the key resolution 
dealing with the refugee issue, Palestinian refugee issue, which was Resolution mm. 194 uh, in December 1948, failed specifically to mention a right of return. And every Palestinian I've ever known would believe that paragraph 11 of that resolution embodies a right of return of Palestinian refugees to what is now Israel. In fact, it doesn't. Uh, The the right exists through a, a range of international aspects of international law and institutions, but 194 does not actually provide anything which is binding. Okay. Uh, The former diplomat Bob Bowker is my guest, and he's giving us an explainer of the formation of Israel post-World War II. Many of you have asked for this, so I I hope you're being informed, as I certainly am. Okay, so let's go. So the war occurs, this first Arab-Israeli war. The Israelis win, um, and there doesn't seem to be after that, but you tell me if I'm wrong, the whole notion of the two states, of the divided, the partition, it just... It just changes fundamentally after that, doesn't it? Well, what you're left with is an area which is divided uh, between a Jewish state, Israel, which uh, is declared on the 15th of, of May, plus some additional territory, and on the other side of the equation, uh, the West Bank, which uh, is under Jordanian occupation or control, uh, and Gaza, which comes under uh, under the Egyptians. And, and armistice agreements are eventually reached to basically leave that partition uh, in place. Israel secured entry to the United Nations in May 1949, after certain declarations and explanations of its position uh, to the UN, including acceptance uh, of US insistence on a discussion of the return of refugees. Um, But the Israelis uh, stipulated that they would have no limits uh, to uh, Jewish migration, and they entered a reservation regarding the status of Jerusalem, um, which meant that they didn't accept the the notion in Resolution 181 that Jerusalem would be a corpus separatum. And so we got to a point where Israel's future is more or less determined. Uh, the Jordanians and the Israelis have reached an armistice agreement between them, which leaves Jerusalem occupied uh, by Israel on the western side and and the old city and other parts of Jerusalem occupied by the Jordanians. And both are reasonably comfortable uh, with, with that outcome. It's not until much later in December 49 uh, that a serious attempt is made, actually promoted by Doc Evatt, uh, to push again, for the idea of a trusteeship over Jerusalem. Uh, but the only effect of, of Evert's attempts of, to do that was to hasten a move by Israel uh, to shift its government to Jerusalem. Knowing this history so well, Bob, and many thanks indeed for making such a good narrative of it, do you see a path forward now? I think there are some lessons and even though we're now looking at probably the most grim uh, situation I can recall over the last 50 years of working on the region, there are some elements that continue, I think, to be worth bearing in mind. The first is that 
international law should be observed and if we want a safer world. But what 48 showed us was that the key is to find the political will among the contending parties to, to resolve their differences. What happens on the ground and in Washington will always matter more than the outcome of discussions in New York. Uh, I'd also think that uh, we should acknowledge uh, that the United Nations, for all its shortcomings, has nevertheless made very significant contributions to containing uh, the worst of the conflict. When you look at the role of people like Count Falk Bernadotte um, on behalf of the refugees, Ralph Bunch as the mediator um, who finally uh, found the, the pathway to armistice, and the role played by UNRWA in preserving Palestinian education and health. Which is the uh, UNRWA, is this, it's a terrible acronym, just about the United Nations uh, Refugee... Re Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, it has uh, basically protected ordinary Palestinians over generations now. Um, but the Middle East is such a fiendishly complex place uh, uh, to resolve uh, be because all its aspects are interconnected, whether it's Jerusalem or refugees or borders or identities. And there are real limits to what the UN can do. Yes, I suppose it's just worth remembering that Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, as Secretary of State, he made real progress in the 70s with all of this, these, these permutations you're describing, with Egypt and Jordan after that terrible war, making peace, full peace with Israel, it, speaking to the Knesset, it, uh, Sadat did. No one thought that was possible. So things are possible that you can't see easily. That's right. But it's worth remembering uh, a conversation I had with the, the Jordanian statesman Zayda Rafai about his conversation with Kissinger uh, back in about 1980 as they were preparing for a conference in Geneva. And Kissinger had, had rung Zayda Rafai and said, look, could we put Jerusalem at the end of the agenda? And Zayda Rafai said, ah, oh, Mr. Secretary, uh, I don't mind whether it's the first place on the agenda or the last. Uh, there'll be no peace in the Middle East until Jerusalem is resolved. Hmm. Yes, worth hearing <laughs> again. Look, Bob Barker, thank you so much indeed. I really do appreciate all the effort you've put into this. No worries, Geraldine. Always good to talk to you. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.